Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Kara Dansky, the chair of the Committee on Law and Legislation of the Women's Human Rights Campaign. And she also serves on the steering committee of the U.S. chapter. She previously served on the board of the Women's Liberation Front from 2016 to 2020. Kara worked for approximately 20 years as a criminal justice reform expert until her advocacy on behalf of women and girls got her canceled from the so-called progressive reform movement. Kara, welcome to Savage Minds. I'm very excited about your coming on the show because of everything that you've been involved in over the years, and we've crossed paths in many Facebook groups and other groups in the fight for women's rights. And in the larger fight, which even supersedes women's rights, this fight for our sanity, our collective sanity, being able to call things by their real names, dare I say. And I wanted to sort of start off by talking about how you've recently made some media appearances on Fox News, where even Tucker Carlson has thanked you for coming on, knowing that you're a lifelong Democrat. Now, this is really important to me because people who are very new to the issue just don't get it. They say to me, well, I've not seen any of this mention of men competing against women or boys running against girls in high school track competitions in any of the media. Well, they're reading the nation. They're reading left of center media. And I have to do the litany and explain to them as a ex-academic turned journalist, how it's impossible to pitch this. You pitch, I pitched a story to Slate years ago and I received the most offensive response that let me know I was from that moment on persona non grata. Can you talk about what is the risk for people like us on the left to write in right-wing papers or to go on places like Fox News, which these days makes a lot more sense? Right. You know, the the sort of left-leaning media's complicity in the cover-up of this movement to destroy reality, to destroy biology, to destroy women's rights is absolutely infuriating. So as you may remember, the first time I went on the Tucker Carlson show was in early 2017. At that time, I was chair of the board of Women's Liberation Front, which we know is WOLF. And it was such a strange moment. Um, you know, we had been pitching our work, we Wolf, I'm no longer on the Wolf board, I need to clarify that. But at the time I was, and we were desperately pitching our work, desperately pitching feminist analysis and feminist critiques of gender identity to the media to no avail. And so one day out of the blue, I had an email in my inbox from Tucker Carlson's producers inviting me to go on the show. Uh, my Im immediate reaction, to be honest, was a little bit of panic because going on Fox News and Tucker Carlson in particular is not something I had ever imagined myself doing. At the time, Wolf had just recently filed its lawsuit, its federal lawsuit, Women's Liberation Front versus United States of America. That lawsuit was eventually um, dismissed with our agreement because it had become moot. But somehow the Tucker Carlson show got wind of that lawsuit and wanted me to come on and talk about it. And I've been on the show three times since then. And yeah, I mean, it's really just been astonishing. I will also just say 
When I first did this in 2017, I got a lot of pushback from women in what I'll sort of loosely refer to as our community globally, um, you know, by which I mean radical feminism or gender critical, we could sort of tease out that terminology. I got a lot of pushback for doing it. These days, not so much. I think a lot of women have come around to the understanding that if we're going to be heard at all, we are only going to be heard in outlets such as Tucker Carlson. And the last thing I'll say before turning it back over to you is that um, having exposing millions of mostly conservative Americans to a radical feminist critique of gender is absolutely not a bad thing, right? Julia Beck went on that show one time and she very straightforwardly said, I'm a radical feminist lesbian and gave a, a, you know, a radical feminist critique of gender. It cannot be a bad thing for conservatives to kind of wake up and hear that there are feminists and lesbians and gay men who are appalled at what the gender identity industry is doing to our communities. Absolutely. And one thing that we should note as well is that the Republican Party, let's say in the States, and certainly the Tories in the UK, to a greater degree, are far more open to issues of homosexuality than even 10 years or 20 years ago. So we're seeing, let's say, the log cabin Republicans, you know, they were less popular when they emerged. Today, frankly, I haven't kept up with what they do, but the idea of being a gay male conservative is not an eyebrow raising thing as it used to be. I think that's right. I think that conservatives certainly here really had to take a deep look when they lost the marriage equality battle so spectacularly. <laughs> and uh, I agree with you. I think that, I mean, there, there are certainly going to be, we need to be clear about this. There are going to be groups like the Westboro Baptist Church and, you know, just really sort of fringe, right-wing, bigoted people who are going to continue to, to cling to desperate homophobia. And it's awful. Like we need to be very clear about that. But in terms of mainstream conservatives, I don't see the kind of raging homophobia that we saw before the Republicans lost the marriage equality battle. One thing to note in terms of uh, the radicalism within the right wing, what can we counter that with? But let's say Antifa, that might be on the surface, you know, saying trans women are women, but it's the most misogynist group of political mongers I've, I've seen, to be honest. And that's where I end up doing a double take and thinking, hmm, the right wing seems to be, I mean, I'm not saying this about every issue clearly, but the conservative or to the right of center seems to be far less misogynist on so many issues. And obviously we can accept from that equation, the right to abortion. But in so many other ways, I feel like a person when I'm talking to people on the right, where when I'm talking to these diehard trans women or women types, I feel invisible. Like I really only exist as a mirror to men. Yeah, you know, this stuff is all, it's all so hard um, in terms of thinking about where we are all situated politically. And when I, when I get pushback or when I get challenged and, and people say to me, well, you know, are, are you right wing? It's like my, my political values have not changed one iota in decades, right? I decided a long time ago 
uh, that I aligned, you know, I, I am very interested in class analysis. I'm very interested in race analysis. I'm very interested, obviously, in feminism. And those values have not changed. It's just that I feel like both socially and politically, what I have been thinking of as the left in the United States and from what I see in the UK as well, they've just abandoned women. And they've also abandoned, you know, hardcore left-wing class analysis. It's just not recognizable to me anymore. Well, certainly that's why Corbyn lost his support and his place within the party, largely because he was far more concerned about pronouns and gender identity than he was about the mounting rates of homeless within the UK. And I'm not surprised by this. People were saying, oh, but momentum is the way to go. It's the future. Uh, No, it, it, it clearly is not. And there's now a push pushback we're hearing far less about a momentum in the United Kingdom, and we're seeing a new movement. Now, after what happened at Clapham Common and then the protests last week, I've entered many groups that are related to women's safety in the United Kingdom, Reclaim the Streets groups. There are many. Kara, uh, I have to bite my tongue. I'm on the verge of getting kicked out of two of them. How to put it, how can we speak about our rights when we're in a group about women's safety and this is the way it goes. Um, Men are women, but we're gonna protect ourselves against men. It's like, I continue to call this a Moibus strip because it makes zero sense if, and then when you say, but trans uh, women, as you like to call them, but they're just men who identify as transgender and they are men. And why are we accepting them from the responsibility, let's say, of our safety in this, you know, in this group's mandate to discuss women's safety in public? And it's amazing how many people, I don't know if it's willful ignorance with a combination or a side order of political grandstanding, but these people will say to your, you know, virtual face that no, trans women are women, they're not violent. So Along that order means, Kara, if I put on my jeans, I'm automatically a rape threat to women, I guess, right? Right. Yeah, I, this whole effort to quote unquote, be nice, be kind, and um, you know, acknowledge people's identities, I think it's death to women's rights. You know, there's been a lot of talk in the past couple of years about the importance of language. I just feel very strongly that we cannot cede any language. To me, the ceding of language in this arena means compromising women's full humanity. And I'm not willing to do that. I'm just, I'm not willing to do it. And for, for me personally, it has been incredibly liberating to, uh, to, to really just, to really stand up and, and full on fight for the rights, privacy and safety of women and girls, meaning human females. And once you sort of decolonize, you know, once, once I decolonized my own mind of any question as to whether a male person can be a female person, it's so freeing. I completely agree. Years ago, when I started to work on my first piece on this, the first person I met with was Julia Long. And we met in a cafe in London and we were talking about the subject. And I kept saying trans women and I would say she, and she stopped me. And she said, 
why are you doing that? <laughs> and it was really lovely the way she challenged my use of these preferred pronouns, which I'm putting in air quotes. And I said to her, I said, but isn't that the nice thing? To and, you know, in two seconds, she deconstructed my will to be nice. And I think it's something that women are especially, females are especially groomed into from childhood. But I think we're seeing this across the board, especially among the left, because the left, remember, we're, we're the nice side of the political spectrum. We're the ones who don't want people to starve, don't want them to suffer rainfalls of bombs, et cetera, et cetera. But I have come to think a lot about this politics of being nice. And I make a distinction between kindness as a human gesture of honesty and niceness, which is this kind of political sophistry that we see being played. And in my estimation, and I'm willing to be wrong about this in the future, because to date we have no proof that there's anything remotely proving gender identity aside from subject subjective will, which ends up being fetish fetishization, women as vestiture, women as the mirror of men. And more sadly, with the recent rise of transgender identity among adolescent females, this is sort of being used in a very different way, albeit, but it's being used to drive that nail in the coffin to say, see, women have it too. So it must be real. So what I say to people who are really invested in kowtowing to the ideology and the pronouns is well, several things. But the first thing that comes to mind is why do you think it's nice to lie to someone? This is it. Like we do it when your friend gets a really hideous haircut and is feeling down and says, is it okay? And you're of course not going to like, they just, you know, got divorced or they're having a bad day. You're not going to say it's really crappy. You're going to white lie your way out of that, which is a very different personal and psychological phenomenon that, than that which we're living, which is we are all caving into the lie, what Jordan Peterson calls compelled speech. Why are we having to echo someone's identity? Why must we have to kowtow to someone's perception of themselves? And, and since when, you know, Harry Miller said this to me the other day, since when are the listener's ears more important than our eyes, right? Or our words? And we're not, you know, evoking hate speech in the actual sense of what hate speech is supposed to mean, we're, we're saying it's a, a man who identifies as transgender. That's where I am now, years after my lovely cafe with Julia Long. I will not say trans women. I think these are silly words that mean nothing. Uh, we're talking about men who like to dress in dresses or in clothes that are traditionally considered or traditionally historically considered pertaining to women, or they like to wear makeup or hair. And it's like, okay, almost all those things you could say about every major rock star from David Bowie through the 1980s, Flock of Seagulls. I mean, check out their hair and their makeup. And this doesn't seem to be getting through that our right to name reality and our right to make a point that there is a basis for women and girls safety based on actual social science facts of who rapes who, who kills who, and why safe spaces are actually important. So what is at stake here where we're seeing 
one of the very clever tactics this lobby has taken has been to chip away at our ability to say woman, girls, and now we're being reduced to cervix havers, chest feeders, I'm forgetting half of them, uterus havers, there's many others, menstruators. Right. I, I, I really have come to think of this as being involved in an abusive relationship. Our entire society, or at least Western society, has been gaslit and lied to for decades now. And I really do think that that is part of the problem. We have been made, we have been forced. You know, this is really, this is part of rape culture. It is. This is men forcing their will on all of society. It's, it's just disgusting. And, you know, sort of getting back to what you were talking about earlier, why, why do people still continue to not see. Part of it is because everyone has been collectively gaslit and lied to. And part of it, of course, is what Jennifer Billick, you know, is always telling us that there is a tremendous amount of money behind this. They are pushing, pushing, pushing. And I really hope to see more research looking into how the science around cult tactics have been working here because they've definitely been in operation. They have, this movement has been lying to everyone and persuading everyone in our, in Western society that if we do not go along with this, then there is something wrong with us. And that's why I've started to really liken it to being in an abusive relationship. Abusers will say to their victims, you know, I didn't say that to you. I didn't do that to you. If I hit you, it must've been your fault. And that's where we are with this movement today. I see that everywhere I turn with this movement. You see it on social media, where the, there's an entire reversal going on. We're accused of threatening their lives with words, when in fact, they get away with, thanks to Jack Dorsey, I presume, they get away with making actual rape and death threats on a regular basis towards women. Dying a fire, we know very well, because it's almost their mantra, but there's many others. And I imagine you saw the collection of Twitter posts made by people in response over the last year to JK Rowling having come out in support of women's rights. Thousands, thousands, and this stays up. And if anyone ever doubted there was a need for feminism, even the most conservative or regressive man on the planet, all they have to do is look at that list of words and phrases told to J.K. Rowling. And sure, one could argue she's quite protected and that whole, well, she's not no platform, she still has a voice and she's a millionaire. Okay, doesn't take away from the fact that women who are not in her position of power or wealth are losing jobs. And you referred to that earlier. I've interviewed dozens of people who have lost work, housing, future employment, present employment, gigs, speaking gigs, books, lecture tours, you name it. I'm finishing up a piece. One, one reason why I was a few minutes late in meeting you is because I'm, I was actually looking at the House of Un-American Committee these last few weeks. And I was trying to find, you know, where like Walt Disney completely folded to the committee, Paul Robeson, beautiful. He spoke, it made me cry. He spoke so brilliantly to that committee. And we're seeing a replay of what happened from the mid 1940s for the next 10, 12 years. And Americans are, we're, we're completely like, 
a, a vast majority of us are completely unaware as to what is going on. Why are, are people not seeing this? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And, and the, the why people are not seeing it, I think goes right back to your original point, which has to do with the media's refusal to put any attention on it. Um, and I, I, I don't really have a satisfactory reason beyond that. I, something that you said made me wanna to touch on the fact that uh, a lot of people are starting to notice that at least in the social media landscape, the people pushing this tend to mostly be women. Now we know that the people behind the movement are very rich and powerful capitalist men who are pushing this. We know that from Jennifer Bildick's research, but a lot of men have pointed out to me, and I think that they're right, that a lot of the people pushing this on social media are women. And so the question then becomes why? Why are women participating in their own oppression? But the answer to that question is actually not difficult, which is that women have been participating in our own oppression for as long as it has existed. And I've really started to see the women who push gender ideology on social media as enabling their abusers. I really think that that's what's going on as a psychological phenomenon. Well, I agree. I've even seen, as I'm sure you have on social media and elsewhere, where women who are doing actions like yours, there was a lot of criticism from the UK towards Hands Across the Aisle, for instance, a group that sought to reach across the political aisle from women on the left and women on the right. Uh, you might remember January, February 2019, where Julia Long and Posey Parker had a, an event they organized at the DC Public Library. Then the next day, I believe, went to an event organized by the mother of a trans-identified daughter on the left, she's written much about this, Catherine Cove, I believe her name is. And you were at that event as well, I believe. And the, the women from the UK got slammed for being in DC. They were told they had no business being there. They didn't know what they were doing. The criticism came from feminists themselves. Right. And I got myself into a bit of trouble for defending their right to be there. And one of right. the women who attacked me, and this attack went on and on because I got attacked a year later out of the blue. And it's, it was shocking to me because I just said, first of all, there's basic issues here. On, in what way is your saying that you're a, a feminist and you're on the left? In what way are you doing you know, goddesses work as it were by preaching to the left of the center feminists. That seems to be not very feminist for one. Right. And secondly, you're misrepresenting what these women are doing. Like the intervention that Long and Parker had at the HRC, which was quite brilliant given that a year later, year and a half later into Delaware Senate is the former head of the press office of the HRC. And that person, I can tell you, did not answer any of my press requests. And I only got press requests responded to once he was out and once he was on the campaign trail. Not, you know, this is not a joke. And so it raises all these ethical issues as to why women, as you mentioned, are pushing the trans agenda so much. The men who said this are absolutely right. And why then when we start to act on it, why is there a purity politics within feminism? And I, I'm putting that in quotes because there isn't one group. It's not like we all meet up on WeChat or something. 
And why is there this notion that any good and godly feminist must be on the left? Right. So, so that whole episode in early 2019 really was astonishing to me. Um, should I should I share a little bit about the background of how that came to be? And please do. So, um, so, so Posey had reached out to Wolf, I believe, wanting to come to the U.S. and go to Twitter. It was shortly after she had been kicked off Twitter. And uh, she had wanted to go to the Twitter offices in Silicon Valley. And her, her thought was to sort of picket the, the Twitter headquarters in Silicon Valley. And I kind of thought, you know, I live in Washington, DC. And I thought, you know, why don't you just come here? Twitter has a Washington, DC office. It's much easier travel-wise from the UK to come to DC. We can do all sorts of things. We can lobby Congress. We can have other events. And they thought that was a great idea. And completely circumstantially, Catherine Cave, who you mentioned, had also reached out to Wolf and said, you know, can you please help? I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a platform at a, at a left-leaning think tank and no one will listen to me. No one. I've been trying to do this for four years and no one will listen to me. You're right. She had a uh, then trans-identified daughter. I'm very happy to say her daughter has since desisted. So that's some good news. Um, and she asked if Wolf could help her get an event set up at the Heritage Foundation. And Wolf said, yes, we'd be happy to do that. And so that's how that event came to be. It just so happened that it was scheduled around the time when Posey and Julia and Venice were here. So we invited them. We said, hey, do you wanna to come to this event? They had nothing to do with setting it up. They had nothing to do with organizing it. They didn't even really know about the Heritage Foundation. They just thought, okay, sure, there's gonna be this event, let's go. And so they came. And so the backlash against them for even setting foot in the heritage building was a bit astonishing to me. And after the event, uh, there was a meeting of parents, all of whom had trans identified children. And Posey walked into the room and she didn't really know what to expect. And all of these parents just started screaming and clapping and thanking her and saying, thank you for giving us a voice. Thank you for talking about this issue. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you say. Thank you for standing up for women and girls. And Posey was quite moved by the whole thing. And I have no regrets about my part in organizing the event or my part in appearing at the event or any of the work that we did. Certainly, I have no regrets about bringing Posey, Julia, and Venice to the halls of Congress and speaking to staff members of, you know, members of the House of Representatives and members of the Senate. Uh, Posey and Julia and Venice had a lovely time taking selfies all over the halls of Congress. It was quite fun. And yeah, when, when, when Posey and Julia, um, you know, spoke with Sarah McBride, that was in an, an office building, I believe, or a conference room in uh, one of the, one of the Senate or house buildings. That was, that was great. You know, they asked some very good and pointed questions. They were in a public space. Nobody ambushed Sarah McBride or anything like that. McBride was just sitting in a room and, and they entered the room as they had every right to do. So that whole episode was really, um, a, a lot of light bulbs went off in my head about sort of what's going on. And as you say, the purity politics. Um, you know, I, I have really started to think about this. You mentioned Hands Across the Aisle, which as you said, is an effort to join Hands Across the Aisle. And I have even come to think of this today as less of about across the aisle as to let's just forget about the aisle and let's just think about a, a, an authentic women's movement. 
And I am reminded of a piece that I read from last summer, I wanna say June or July, written by a UK woman named Louise Perry. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna paraphrase, I might mess up her quote, but essentially what she said is that party here is irrelevant because there are enough similarities among women to create a coherent set of political interests. And I just love that because mm -hmm. as you well know, the, the, the debate about abortion rights in the US is, you know, it's really, really difficult, right? It's really difficult to make common cause with women who want to deprive me of my right to have an abortion. That's a really hard thing to do, but we're doing it. I think, I think and tell me if I'm wrong, I think it's less difficult in the UK because the UK doesn't have such a strong anti-abortion movement as we do here. Right. In the U.S., it's, it's state by state, which makes it a game of hopscotch. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> it's yeah. awful. But I was really taken with what Louise Perry had to say. There are enough similarities between women to create a common, a coherent set of political interests. That's what we need. We need a coherent set of political interests. We don't need to agree on everything. We don't mm -hmm. need to like the same things in order to have a political movement. So that's kind of what's motivating me these days. Well, I hear you. When Posey and Long were called a liability by someone quite high ranking, I'm using that word facetiously within the women's movement in the UK, I did a double take and I was very polite. And I was like, mm, that's what political activism looks like. This is what it is. I got booted out of groups. Oh my gosh, just for standing up for them. You know, we all have disagreements on many issues. And this whole topic has made me become much more tolerant of different opinions. Thank God, because I had to uncover my own wokeness. But one thing that really has gutted me has been that attack in early 2019. And it seems to get repeated. And I'm like, why can't we just move forward? Because the bottom line is, it's going to take many people on board with their ways of cobbling things together. Posey reaches so many people that academics won't, but the academics are reaching people in the way that maybe Posey won't. Everything is about coming together to make the voices heard to different audiences, right? Yeah, for sure. And you know, it's not nothing that the, the most recent time I went on the Tucker Carlson show, well, let me back up. The first time I went on the Tucker Carlson show, the Wolf website crashed that night. There were so many hits on the Wolf website that it crashed. I do not think it can be a bad thing to expose Americans to radical feminist analysis. The most recent time I went on Tucker Carlson, you know, was since I had left Wolf and I'm working with the Women's Human Rights Campaign, the WHRC Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, the website crashed. And then as soon as it got back up again, the number of signatories skyrocketed. And that, that just cannot be a bad thing. Absolutely. And Tucker Carlson has been sane. Uh, you know, I recall after 9-11, I couldn't stand to see him. I was really sad about what the U.S. reaction was to 9-11, deeply disturbed by the military actions and the lies, you know, WND, etc. But oh my, he has completely shifted. It's not just me either. I, he's much more coherent and actually 
I see that he's making sometimes often class-based arguments. I'm thinking not of this topic, but of his coverage of COVID. And it's quite interesting to see uh, the left and the right are shifting political valences. And that has everything to do with why I can sit and watch him today and CSNBC makes me jittery. And yeah. I'm thinking beyond this topic. But this topic has put women's and girls' rights in the center, up for grabs. And we've seen it with the Title IX issue surrounding sports. I've interviewed Selena Sol and her representation from the ADF. Biden came into office and he signed an executive order that would implicate that we have to redefine sex to mean gender identity. So if age, are, is this signed into law? And can you explain to our listeners what his executive order means and what are the reaches that it goes to? Sure, so the executive order that President Biden signed on January 20th affects federal administrative law. That is to be distinguished from the Equality Act, which is currently pending before Congress and affects legislative law. So does that distinction make sense just right off the bat? Yes, although are they both federally defined or would they be relegated state by state in the sense of we've seen recently Mississippi pass you know, um, legislation stating that boys cannot compete on women's teams, uh, on girls' teams or men on women's teams? So how the federal laws will impact these recently enacted state laws, such as the Mississippi law you're referencing, That's it's, right. not quite, it's not quite clearly known yet, at least it's not known by me. I suspect that it will result in a lot of litigation to figure out exactly how these laws will interact with each other. But the answer to your question is the, the Biden order and the Equality Act are both federal. The distinction or the main distinction is that the Equality Act is a bill before Congress. The executive order is an order put out by the administration and affects only federal administrative law at this point. And what the order does, we could talk about the act as well if you'd like, but what the order does is it told federal agencies, okay, federal agencies, you have a hundred days to figure out how you are going to redefine sex to include gender identity throughout federal administrative law. So yes, it has been issued. It was issued on January 20th. The order itself did not change any laws. Instead, it told agencies that they have a hundred days to figure out a plan for changing the laws. So it's very bad to be clear, it is really, really bad, but it did not itself amend existing law. So the 100 days expires on April 30th. So we expect to see, you know, by April 30th, some agencies coming out with proposed rules, engaging in the rulemaking process, putting out proposed regulations, and the US chapter of WHRC fully intends to submit formal responses to those. But I do wanna say that this whole issue around sex and gender identity, I think that you, it, I think it's fair to say that you and I both come to this discussion mainly through the lens of feminism. 
Our, what, what chiefly motivates both of us is a deep concern for the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls and the protection of women and girls on the basis of sex in law. So that's great and extremely, extremely important. And also, I think that the redefinition of sex to include gender identity has such far reaching ramifications that most Americans and probably most people in Europe have not even begun to think about. For example, I happen to know because of my previous work in the criminal justice system that the FBI tracks crime statistics by sex. It's got a graph, anybody can pull it up. Look up Google Uniform Crime Report Table 42. It comes right up and it's got these columns. The most recent data available is 2019. It's got these columns and it says, okay, murder, number committed by males, number committed by females, percentages, rape number committed by males, females, percentages, et cetera, for all sorts of different kinds of crimes. So the FBI is tracking crime rates based on sex. And we can see quite plainly with our eyes <laughs> that the overwhelming majority of serious violent and sexual crime is committed by male people. We know that anyway, but we can see it on the FBI's website. Now the FBI is, I should think, affected by the Biden order. So what does this mean? Is the FBI no longer allowed to track crime rates by sex? Does it have to completely redefine table 42? And instead of saying arrests by sex, is it now going to have to say arrests by gender identity? If so, what does that mean? How on earth is the FBI going to be able to meaningfully track crime statistics if it has to do so according to this bizarre, nebulous, undefined, bullshit, excuse me, concept of gender identity. I, mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. know who has, who has even begun to grapple with this. The NIH, National Institute of Health, the CDC, Center for Disease Control, all of these agencies do public health research by sex because it's important to know, for example, how a particular drug might affect a male body differently than it affects a female body. One should think that that is important information for our society to collect and study and research and learn about and form the basis for public policy, right? We're supposed to be having public policy that is grounded in material reality, one should think. How on earth are we going to have healthy, sound public health policy if we're not allowed to do research on various drugs, hormones, et cetera, based on sex. Has anybody begun to even grapple with the magnitude of the changes that, are, that we're likely to see when the Biden order is implemented? The reason why we have sex segregation and toilets and gyms, changing rooms, et cetera, is because not that my best friend is a rapist or your husband or your brother, but because as a demographic, we do this to accommodate the fact that their demographic is the demographic that harms our demographic. Now, most men know this. So it picks my, my defenses. When I see men telling me to STFU, it's usually it's followed by Diana Fire, but, or a bitch or you know, other epithets, turf, right? And it's always about 
my being inconvenient to their narrative that men are really the victims. And it's an incredible reversal, isn't it, Kara, that we are in the 21st century dealing with the most insane specter where men are, are they're pulling that, you know, that cartoon-esque maneuver where the cartoon figure puts on the wolf costume and then you're like, oh, it's a wolf, it's dangerous. And in the inverse, now we're supposed to believe that because men say, my name is Steve, you know, Stephanie, not Stephen. And you're supposed to say, all good. Like, we're not idiots. And part of what gets me about what's happened to our rights isn't only the safety issue, certainly, that was how I got into this. But in recent years, I'm offended intellectually by the fact that people think I'm supposed to be stupid enough to think that men wearing makeup means all good, you know? And that's what right. we're being sold. We're being sold a bullshit lie. And how is this going to work out over the generations in terms of one, are we going to start to see a rise of teenage girls getting pregnant because they didn't know that she had a penis or that her penis, in quotes, is male? Are we going to see girls and women who actually lose the autonomy to be able to self-protect? And we self-protect in the first instance through language. We all do it. We all say, mm, excuse me, this is a woman's toilet. Uh, no, this is, it says women here. And now we can't do that without being called a bigot, transphobic turf, et cetera, where there's a whole smorgasbord of words that were called. There are practically no actions, no media addressing the reality of men who identify as transgender, who have a huge record of rape, murder, et cetera. And we've seen this. Remember the events in California of the lesbian couple and their child murdered by such a person. And I don't want to cherry pick here, but when we got skipped to Nicola Williams' work in the UK, where she was able to get the breakdown of sex offenders who are transgender in UK prisons, male sex offenders, over half of them were sex offenders in the prisons were sex offenders. So when we start to look at not scientific evidence. This is not scientific study yet. Why? There's no studies because no one wants to do them. Um, but we're seeing pretty good evidence that there's good reason that maybe we should even be more fearful of people who identify as transgender who are male, simply because they're the ones pushing the boundaries. They're the ones encroaching upon our reasonable right to say no. Right. Yeah, the, the person that you're talking about in California is named Dana Rivers. And uh, I happen to know that the next hearing in, the, in that matter is going to be this Thursday. And I'm in touch with the prosecuting attorney on that case. But, but what I just want to say is that I have not been able to get an answer to the question, is Rivers being housed in a women-only jail facility? I've not been able to get an answer to that question. However, it is possible, it's, it's available to the public to look up the inmate locator database and Dana Rivers is being classified by the county jail system as female, even though um, Dana was born Daniel and Dana's male. So yeah, this is, this is increased, I, you know, and we, of course, most of your listeners will know the Karen White um, incident in the UK and we're seeing this increasingly. It, it's just starting to trickle out 
that Washington state has a policy of allowing male prisoners to be housed in a women's prison on the basis of their so-called gender identity. And I just heard yesterday a story about uh, six men who are held in a women's prison in Washington state. Uh, I believe all of them have a history of either a violent crime or a sex crime. And why are there not more studies being done? One would think that the prison system would be worried about lawsuits in a very pragmatic way. Well, that's interesting. Some of the, the, the only reason we know this is that some of the employees of the prison, corrections officers, I presume, reached out to local media and said, I cannot give you my name. I can only be anonymous, but I work at the Washington State Department of Corrections. There are men being housed in women's prisons. I am gravely concerned for the safety of our female inmates. And I'm also concerned about the potential for lawsuits. And this is, the story has gotten out in local media, a, a local Seattle-based radio station is reporting on it, but that's it. It is getting no national media attention. None. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now back to our show. And there were also two prisoners, if I recall correctly, from the Dallas area, female prisoners, who were raising a lawsuit there about being housed with men. Yeah, it's Fort Worth. And I spoke with those two women on the phone. They were absolutely terrified to be in a locked prison cell with a male prisoner. And um, <clears throat> I don't know the status of that lawsuit, just to be honest, I could look it up. But again, you know, the only reason we know about that is it's, it's, it's covered in some local Fort Worth paper. This issue is not receiving any national media attention and it's infuriating. When you want to see anything about the transgender community, the left will only run positive, brave, affirmative stories. They are not running and they are not accepting pitches from any of us on the cases of Dana Rivers. And it's really heartbreaking because I depend on left media. I need left media to hold accountable the powers that be. I need right media to do that too, but I like the balance. And without that balance, we are now living in a state of Politburo where you know Amazon is not allowing any kind of advertisement for Abigail Schreier's book. We're seeing more and more Amazon interfering with the ability of publishers to do advertising for books that mention even a link between gender identity or transgender identity and gender dysphoria, because slowly but surely they're removing all mention of gender dysphoria, because we're going to see this. It's heading towards, it's not a psychological condition at all, even though it's in the DSM-5. That was, and then the comparison comes in to my affliction, <laughs> homosexuality, right? Remember, you were once in the DSM, which is absolutely true, but these are false parallels. Right. The gay rights movement was never based on my hitting the streets and telling you and other heterosexuals, you have to call me straight or else I'll murder you or else I'll get you fired. No, it was a civil rights movement to sit at the counter, to 
have access to housing, etc. Right? Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about liberal media, the thing that infuriates me, possibly even more than the blackout of our voices, is that when the left-leaning media does a story that that is not about this issue, but it is about some issue pertaining to sex. So here's what I'm thinking about, for example. My partner listens to NPR. I can't stomach NPR anymore, but he still does. So, and he, you know, he gets us on this issue. So he was telling me that there, there was an interview of a woman who had been diagnosed with breast cancer while she was pregnant. And so the whole discussion was about her experience dealing with breast cancer while she was pregnant and the discussion centered around women's health, right? So it was a good story. I'm glad they had it. I'm glad they had her voice out there. But the point is this, nobody was confused about what a woman was when she was talking, right? When she would say something like women in the healthcare system or women's healthcare, or you know the challenges that women face when we get breast cancer and the particular challenges that women face when we get breast cancer while we're pregnant. Nobody jumped up and down and yelled at her to call herself cis. Nobody did it because everybody knows. When there's a story in Vice or Vox or Slate or whatever about the Me Too movement and, the, and, and male violence against women, right? The left-leaning media will go off on male violence against women. No one's confused. Literally, no one is confused. But all of a sudden, mention gender identity and everybody loses, loses their minds. Well, that's it. Uh, gender identity seems to be this get out of jail card. Yeah. I mean, if Saddam Hussein had been alive today, he could have just identified as trans and saved us all the hassle. <laughs> I mean, it's really disturbing to me to see the velocity at which this movement has scampered forth. Why don't we let Harvey Weinstein identify as a woman and get out of jail? Exactly. Why? Yeah. Or have him transferred to the women's cell. I mean, we're being hyperbolic for listeners just coming in, but this is this is where we are, where men are having their feelings catered to. This is the way I read it. And the, the genderists will come in and say, but women too, well, let's separate. And I think this is something I wanted to discuss with you. There's a huge difference between the long history of men identifying as transgender or being transsexual, which is the longer history, and the recent insertion of the rapid onset gender identity that Lisa Littman's work has evidenced. And what I, as an anthropologist, am witnessing, which is very similar to Littman's approach in adolescent girls. But I would say we have got a rapid onset gender identity socially, anthropologically. The way transgender identity has been slowly morphed from the longer history of transsexualism and the way in which this was historically largely relegated to men who wanted to cross-dress. Uh, Ray Blanchard, I've interviewed him, and he's talked a lot about this, how there were primarily two groups of transsexuals, the autogynophilic variety and the gay variety. And he noted that as homosexuality has been more and more accepted, that the homosexual variety has waned and is practically non-existent leaving us with AGPs. Now, a lot of people don't like to talk about it, including myself. I have avoided it until this year. 
both because I didn't want to alienate people who were coming to this subject, also because I think it's really important that any discussion of AGP might not, you know, it might come off as sounding right wing, <laughs> but I think it's important to speak about facts and facts are many things. And I don't think that they need to be couched as uniquely right or left wing, uh, if yeah. anything. So there are two different, you know, sexes and the more recent immersion of transgender identity has been amongst females, usually adolescents or young women in their late teens, early 20s. Could you speak about why this is so important that people understand the distinction of these two groups? So it seems to me that with respect to the young women who are doing this, it, it's absolutely heartbreaking, really, because you know most of us who survived growing up female uh, know that it's difficult to grow into a woman. It's difficult when all of a sudden older men start staring at your body in a way that maybe they didn't before. Um, you start to get a lot of attention. Some of it might be wanted. Most of it probably isn't. Um, it's really, really hard. And I do not have daughters and I'm no longer a young woman. And so I'm not immersed in the world of young women today, but my understanding from the reading that I've done is that it is so much worse today than it was when I was growing up several decades ago in terms of the internet, you know, in terms of pornography, in terms of what teenage boys are expecting girlfriends to look like and do and how to act. And so I guess for me, it's not even slightly mysterious why a young woman going through society today would rather, quote unquote, be a boy. Um, you know, so sometimes getting breasts is hard. And if you're a teenage girl and you are maybe an early developer or, you know, a large breasted young woman, you might want to get rid of them. Like, that's not hard for me to understand. It, it's, it's tragic. It, I mean, it's really heartbreaking and, and tragic in a lot of ways. But I think the, the bigger point that you're making is that this phenomenon is very different from the men with AGP who quote unquote transition, even though that's not a thing, uh, who quote unquote transition because they are sexually aroused by the thought of themselves as a woman. And you know, to the point about coming off sounding right wing, I don't think that's right wing at all. And it kind of links back to the point you made earlier about the difference between this phenomenon the, the trans issue mm -hmm. and the fight for gay and lesbian rights because sexual attraction fundamentally is about attraction to other on the basis of sex, right? Right. Lesbians are women attracted to women, gay men are men attracted to men and heterosexual people are attracted to the opposite sex, right? That's not mysterious. Right. But with the AGP trans phenomenon, this is all about men who fetishize womanhood and are sexually aroused at the thought of themselves as female. And one of the mistakes that I think a lot of people make, and, and I myself had to be educated about this because I didn't understand it, is that when men who claim to identify as transgender have sexual relationships with other men who claim to identify as transgender, a lot of people think, well, that makes them gay. 
because they're men having sexual relationships with men. But what I had to be educated about is no, they're not actually gay. They are not actually attracted to other men. What they are is, attract, is attracted to the idea of themselves playing the role of a female in a sexual relationship. Yes, hence the ire coming from the lesbian community about the fact that of the cotton ceiling that they are being told if they do not sleep with these men, that they're transphobic. And there's something quite creepy to me as a gay woman being given these images of men who, as I said recently, are these pantomimes of 1950s film, uh, yeah. not at all appealing. I could, I could be in polysexual, uh, not at all appealing to me. <laughs> I'm sure there are people out there who like it. But when I see it, I see that really horrific, to me, it's one of the ugliest art artifacts of the art world of the 1980s, but that Jeff Koon statue of Michael Jackson and Bubbles, that's what I liken it to. Um, not sexually attractive, not to me. I'm sure to each their own, right? Um, or to each their own. <laughs> but, you know, but this bring, brings up the larger network of trans cookery, because we have now dozens, even hundreds of gender identities. And, you know, remember five years ago when it was, we're breaking down the gender binary. What this was, was just a, a game of jeopardy where we're all guessing what the next possible concoction will be. Yeah, I mean, that's what I used to think. I, you know, sometimes people ask me, what was your peak trans moment? Well, I didn't really have one because I was never really a cheerleader for the trans rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, but what I was, was sort of a, you know, mainstream good liberal doing what I thought I was supposed to do as a liberal, right? And so I just assumed, you know, I, I'm all in favor of human rights and civil rights for everyone. And I just kind of assumed that the whole quote unquote trans rights movement was an important part of that. And it was a radical feminist woman who completely bop, pop, you know, popped that bubble in my head in late 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting where I'm going with this. Oh yeah, I, I think I thought that this was a sincere attempt to abolish gender, which is what I have wanted to do as a feminist, right? That's a core aspect of radical feminist analysis is that gender is something that needs to be abolished. And I think that I thought until 2014 that this was part of that movement. And I obviously have now come to understand it's the opposite of that. It is reinforcing gender stereotypes and roles. It yep. is reinforcing gender. I was always deeming about this when people would say, but we're, we're breaking down the gender binary. And I was like, if you really believe that, uh, get a mop, help clean the house, take a 20% pay cut. It's very transparent to us vagina havers what this movement is about. Because I have yet to meet any of these men who claim to be a woman one, not one, have I met, who identifies aside from vestiture. And it, it reeks to me, I mean, you know, I remember in the day, I would take my students from NYU after the semester was over, after the work was done to celebrate end of session. Okay. And I took them to this place called Bardot, beautiful club, no longer exists in the West Village. And, you know, it was a great place to hang out as a New Yorker. But over the years that I would do this, I started to see 
more what you know we would call bridge and tunnel types the people coming in from uh, new jersey long island connecticut and they were like the straightest of couples coming to see the show now not to begrudge them their entertainment but i was like this is my haven right but it was interesting because that was in the mid 90s and very quickly the scene at bardo and many other drag clubs became primarily heterosexual. And this isn't new. We saw this, you know, the cotton clubs in Harlem were initially very African-American based and with time became more mixed and, uh, you know, the jazz world with many Jewish musicians and then more of their friends would be at the clubs and then the clubs became more, it was natural process of culturally mixed. But the thing that I think of is how when feminists at the time, I was in my 20s, would tell me, oh, but that's so offensive. I was like, it was just play. Now, I make the distinction between onstage performance and real life. And it was when the real life jumped the shark that I started to put on the brakes. So my first memory of the tea was when I returned from Italy, where I had been living in the 90s. And I came back to New York in 99, and there was a tea added. And I'm like, what's the tea? transgender. And I was like, oh, what does that to do with us? That is zilch to do with us. I had met people who were transsexual, but they literally had nothing to do with, I mean, it's not a sexuality. And this was the slowly boiled frog. Now we've got our human rights in the balance in the States, girls who are having to compete against boys, women with male, male prisoners in their cells, we have the threat of having our work taken away from us. The, the Biden executive order, which if successful to redefine sex to mean gender identity, will mean that we can no longer talk about sex. Because as you and I know, gender identity and even the word gender was slipped into forms. People in the States especially where we have that history of prudishness and people wouldn't want to say sex because you know, Christian conservatives, blah, blah, blah. Gender became this way of avoiding saying the word sex. Little did the people who wrote that kind of slipping in of language realize that that also became the quote unquote gateway drug to gender identity where they could slip in. Well, it's an internal feeling. And so many people on the left do not still understand why it's offensive. The idea of everyone having to have a gender identity, and I'm not talking about offensive in terms of my eyes or ears can't tolerate it. There's a rewriting of, of law that will mean that you and I can no longer speak about the female body. And people aren't really on the left making those connections. They're not seeing, well, what harm is it if someone wants to identify as a woman? What do you say to them? Yeah, so, so there's this guy and I refer to him as Pink Bikini Man. And the reason that I do that is he spent the summer of 2020 scooting around Washington DC on a pink scooter wearing a pink bikini having long blonde hair and pink nail polish and makeup, he would stop people on the street and demand money 
claimed to be raising money for a, you know, quote unquote, trans homeless shelter. He accosted me on the street on no fewer than three occasions and tried to hand me a flyer that said trans women are women. This is a scary dude, right? This guy's like maybe six foot two or so um, on a scooter. He would get right up in my personal space. And one day I was in a restaurant and I went to the women's room. This is a family restaurant. Uh, there were a bunch of kids around and I went into the women's room and he was in there. Mm -hmm. And it drives me nuts that people on the left accuse us of being quote unquote hysterical or demonizing trans people or you know whatever they accuse us of. This is very real. You know, when the North Carolina bathroom debate happened, Everybody said we were crazy. Everybody said we were exaggerating. Everybody said we were just, you know, demonizing trans people and whatnot. But, you know, I want every single one of those people who's accused me of being a right-wing bigot to have to be in a women's bathroom with Pink Bikini Man and then tell me that I'm hysterical. The, 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 my point here is that this is real. Yeah. This is very real. Feminists aren't nuts. We're not exaggerating. We're not making things up. I had to be in a women's bathroom with Pink Bikini Man. And just so your listeners know, Washington, D.C. has an ordinance in place that says everyone gets to use the bathroom that coincides with their gender identity. And what mm -hmm. that meant was I happened to know the owner of this place. And I went up to him and he has three young daughters and they were there that day. And I went up to him and I said, Brian, I am probably not supposed to say this to you, and I know there's nothing you can legally do about it, but there's a man in the women's bathroom, and he immediately knew who I was talking about. So these concerns are very real, and I don't know if that is an answer to your question. It's maybe an answer by way of example, right. um, but we're not making this up. You know, Lear Keith often says, the worst part of all of this is that no one believes us. And she's yeah. absolutely right. And until people on the left wake up to the reality of what this means, we just have to keep fighting. Well, I agree. I lost a very good friend of 25 years over a comment I made on his Facebook page when he showed a woman who had taken an enormous amount of testosterone that remember nominated for Men's Health Magazine or something and or men's health magazine calendar, I have no idea. Ironically, woman on an annual calendar, go figure. Right. You know, and I said, well, this is a woman under testosterone. Why aren't we discussing the great health implications? Which I wrote about for Quillette in the piece I wrote on sports and transgenderism because by accident, investigating one of the doctors doing the Olympic study, he led me down the trail to the coronary drug project, which had horrific results out of 8,000 subjects, 2,000 died. Uh, Cross-sex hormones are no joke. And I have to wonder, getting back to the idea of, you know, the difference between being nice and kind, the nice people want to, you know, pat people on their shoulder. And this even extends to some of the nice feminists out there who are unwilling to just stand up and say, well, we need to distinguish between this pathology of being nice, which is really rooted in narcissism and being kind. And the two are not the same. Being kind to the trans identified people, community, if you will, would involve our saying to them, why are you injecting dangerous synthetic hormones into your body? And uh, the follow-up question might be, look, 
wear a frock, wear a dress, wear Laura Ashley. Can't stand it, like for me personally, the style, but I won't kick you out of my house if you wear Laura Ashley. Why are we instead having foisted upon us the, and it's only women, you know this, we have to mirror these men. And so I always refer to Nan Golden's infamous show at the Whitney where it's, it was entitled, I am not your mirror. Um, I am not their mirror, you know? Um, I'm sorry, her show was entitled, I am your mirror. And I was playing on her show's name by saying to you know, someone on, on the uh, social media, I am not your mirror. Why do I have to confirm a man's identity? And they're only going to women. You rarely see them going to men because they know quite well that these men will slap it down, linguistically speaking. They will not have it. Men know what men and women are, and so do we. So in the same way that Lier Keith says, you know, the most infuriating part is people don't believe us, I echo that, adding on to it, it's almost as if we're in the the medieval era and people are thinking that you and I don't know how to read or think we are being right. told by men but we just don't get it educate yourself you know but you need to read and of course the references given are not generally peer-reviewed papers they are the many journals to include most disappointingly science which has kowtowed to this lobby doesn't run peer-reviewed stuff because if they did, they would be agreeing with us. They run op-eds that agree to the kowtowing. And right. I find it telling that we are seeing a rapid onset gender dysphoria happen amongst not just teenagers, amongst adults. This is allowed, and it could even have a large helping of narcissism in it. And this is not being investigated. We're not seeing uh, sociologists or cultural anthropologists study this because they wouldn't get the funding to do it. And we're not seeing any of this being questioned by people like journalists because the only people doing it are, are like T Tucker Carlson. And I think there's a point in which enough is enough. And so I lost my friend of 25 years. He called me a bigot, a bigot. And, um, and I just kept thinking, wait, this is the same person who was obsessed with my work. I was doing work at the time um, when I was last in New York, I should say, with the ACLU on the project of disappearance post 9-11 and all the Muslim men who had been disappeared. And the same friend who called me a bigot would daily, whenever we would meet, complain about the Muslim shop on the corner, complain about why is there Arabic in the window? Why don't they speak English? and would complain to me about why I'm investigating disappeared men in the United States, asking me if I myself had become Muslim. So the, the square wasn't completely fitting. And I, I have to say, thinking about this and thinking about the people who will know platform within your own personal circles, uh, people you've never met on Facebook calling you a bigot, etc., that there is a big resistance by people who consider themselves leftists to not consider any of this. And, and they're not considering it because again, it's, it's that circle they're in. They're eating from the same media machine that feeds them what they're saying on social media. They're not stepping out of their comfort zone. Yeah, I 100%. And one thing that has happened quite recently that I'm sure you know about that has been fascinating to your point about like it's women who are the targets of this. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
but but also I'm very curious about this emerging super sexual movement. Are you following this? Oh yes, yes, yes. So you know, I got added to a Facebook group, um, you know, really championing the LGBS, right? Lesbian, gay, bisexual, straight, because those those are the sexual orientations, right? And so so you know, we're, we're all sort of joined together by bisexual orientation. And to your earlier point, the T has nothing to do with it. And people are all sorts of mad about it. But that came about because gay men and straight men started to get attacked, right? Gay men started to get told about the boxer ceiling, that they're transphobic if they won't sleep with a quote unquote trans man. And then straight men started getting told that they're transphobic if they won't sleep with a woman with a penis. And straight men were like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> they know. <laughs> they made those bad Budweiser commercials in the 80s, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it, it, it beggars belief. Yesterday I was interviewing Inaya Fuller and Iman, beautiful, beautiful thinker. And she touched upon something that I did not know, but now there's like the cray cray has gone so full circle that now you have some white activists arguing that whiteness is on a basis of shades of gray. And you know, it's like white is the new black. It's insane. So we are seeing the serpent eating its own tail as it were. And I think it's gonna get more interesting in the coming months. Um, and I hope it gets more interesting because I would rather us not have to be fighting for the right to say the word woman and to be fighting for our rights to, let's say, medical care or to, gosh, let's have in the United States, you know, a single payer healthcare system on the par, on par with that of Canada or France, et cetera. You know, let's do something that can actually bring human rights to humans rather than cater to the most narcissistic point something percent of the population. While, I mean, this is the paradox, Kara, the same people that say, but you've misgendered me and you've done this. They're not trying to form sports teams with their one of the hundreds of flavors of pronouns. They're not trying, or, or gender identities. They're not trying to break into new ways of conceiving of their special identity. They claim to be breaking the gender binary, but they're crashing on one side of the gender binary repeatedly. Yeah, I mean, it's very frustrating. We've got a, a crisis of you know maternal health care for black mothers in the United States, and some people want to get upset about pronouns. We have a crisis at the border, you know, in the yeah. U.S. Well, yeah, you know, there there are plenty of human rights crises to be very worried about, and it really pisses me off that somehow pronouns are one of them. Yes, pronouns and the right that women can say no to men. Yeah. And that comes down to, as I found out in Reclaim the Streets groups, that now they, the damage has been so far done. I am speaking to college educated, university educated women who are calling me a transphobe because they literally believe that a man can jump sex by, I swear to God, it's like Dorothy clicking her heels and saying, there's no place like home. We are there. They're enabling their abusers. What's the way out of this then? I mean, you've 
you know, you're a lawyer by training. Yeah, I'm a lawyer by training. I mostly have focused on policy analysis and, and research and, and report writing and stuff like that rather than litigation. Um, I mean, I think we have to be we have to be focusing at it on all angles. So I thought years ago that there are going to be two issues that are going to start waking people up. And those two issues are going to be women's sports and the transing of kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm anyway, that has come to pass. Right. And people are starting to talk about sports. We've got half the states, half of the states in the U.S. have either passed or uh, are looking at bills to protect women's sports. And that is generating a lot of conversation. And that is a very good thing. People are waking up to the the transing of kids, which I consider to be child abuse. And people are starting to wake up. It's slower than either of us would like, but it is happening. The problem I continue to think is that mainstream Democrats do not understand what Biden's order is going to do and do not understand what the Equality Act will do if it passes. And so we at the Women's Women's, Women's Human Rights Campaign in the U.S. chapter have been doing everything we can to communicate with the administration, to communicate with Congress, Republicans and Democrats, to bring attention to the long-term consequences of redefining sex to include gender identity. We'll keep doing it. And I just have to keep crossing my fingers that one of these days we're going to get a break in the media. I certainly hope so. Are you having any luck with any of our senators or Congress people? You know, maybe, maybe um, we're, we're trying to be as strategic as we can. Uh, we got wind a couple of weeks ago that Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer has the authority to bring the Equality Act to a Senate floor vote at any time. And so what we did in response to that was immediately turn around and we asked the Women's Human Rights Campaign Global Organization to see if we could get signatures on a letter. And we had a two page letter signed by thousands of women all over the world, imploring Majority Leader Schumer not to bring the Equality Act to a floor vote because of the devastating consequences that the bill would have on women all over the world. And very quickly after that, we learned that the bill got sent to the Senate Judiciary Committee for a hearing. So I don't know if we played any role in persuading Majority Leader Schumer to send it to a hearing before bringing it to a floor vote. A floor vote. I have no way of knowing that. Can you explain what it going to a hearing would mean for those who are not aware of U.S. procedures? Sorry. Typically, when a bill is introduced before either chamber of Congress, it will be uh, it'll be introduced in a committee. And there will be a hearing or a series of hearings on the bill. People can debate, witnesses can testify, there's discussion, and uh, that's the normal process. And if the members of the committee vote to pass the bill, then it is out of that committee, and then it can either go to a different committee or it can go to the full Senate. In this instance, what we feared was going to happen was that the bill was not going to go into a committee at all that it was gonna go straight to the floor of the Senate for a full Senate vote with no discussion. We were afraid of that happening because Majority Leader Schumer had the authority to do it, but he ultimately did not exercise that authority. He could have done it. He probably could have just brought the bill to the full Senate for a vote, no discussion, and possibly have gotten it passed, but he didn't do that. Instead, he allowed the Senate Judiciary Committee to discuss it 
There was a hearing last Wednesday. It lasted for three and a half hours. It was exhausting, but there was at least a hearing. It didn't go as well as I would have liked, but there was at least a hearing and the committee has not voted. So my answer to your question is, are we having any results? I don't know. It's very difficult to say, but we're being as loud as we possibly can to get our voices heard. Thank you.